Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast. Covering the latest breakthroughs, research news and insight, delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. In this episode, Stephen Jordan discusses the development and practice of participatory action research and initiatives for socio-cultural change. The way I see it, and the way I've understood it, is that it's an amalgam of different um, uh, methodologies. Um, they can be qualitative, quantitative, uh, in, they can be, could be a mixed methodology, qualitative and quantitative together. Um, it's used in very different contexts, everything from urban school settings to working with uh, peasants, uh, rural communities in um, the global south. Um, the, the other thing to note about power, I think, is that um, historically it's come from without the academy. In other words, it's, been, it's a methodology uh, that's been developed or has its origins in um, uh, social movements in the global south. And then it's kind of migrated to the north uh, to some extent. Um, it also sort of has roots in adult education too. So in sectors outside of formal education, certainly outside of the university and the academy. And what's interesting is that in the last maybe decade or so, the academy has discovered PAR, uh, if you like, and has um, uh, taken it up and um, incorporated it in its repertoire, its toolbox of methodologies. So that, for example, a lot of my graduate students use it now uh, in the research in which they do. Um, 20 years ago, it was relatively unknown, so I think that's uh, an important thing to understand about PAR. Um, I think the other thing about PAR is is that it's a it's openly political, um, and there are different versions of it. So that PAR um, has um, both radical and more liberal um, versions. So that the the radical versions, um, interestingly enough, come from the global south and uh, are inspired by social movements there, particularly um, uh, inspired by Marxist uh, thoughts, uh, feminist work and anti-colonial um, struggles. Uh, whereas in the global north, when it's been, um, where it emerged in the global north, um, it's been more of a, has a more of a liberal tone to it. It's um, been used by action researchers um, uh, working with teachers, for example, and other professionals. In other words, it's been professionalised, I suppose, to some extent in the global north. And it's used primarily um, to improve practices of teachers, of healthcare workers, nurses, and so on. So um, there are two distinct versions of it, and um, they, uh, they've been running in parallel with each other for the last oh, 20, 30 years, I suppose. Um, the other thing I'd like to emphasize about PAR is that it uh, is, um, I mean, I think one of the things, interesting things about it was, is that it attempts to reorganize and restructure the social relations between researcher and research, at least in the more radical versions, so that um, uh, researchers work alongside with um, the people that are, that are being, or the subjects that are being researched. And so, the way in which um, researchers using a PAR methodology, especially from more, a more critical perspective, would actually see, conceptualize 
the subjects of their research as co-researchers. So they, everything from uh, posing questions about the research, research questions, to the um, the design of the research, to the collection of data, to the analysis of the data, would be a cooperative, collaborative form of inquiry um, in the more critical approaches to PAR. In more liberal mainstream approaches to PAR and action research, and what's important there is, is to understand that PAR and action research are often used interchangeably. So you'll find people talking about action research, which traditionally is more liberal, and PAR, and so there's often a, a crossover. But people who use um, the more liberal versions are more interested in, um, as I said before, um, uh, focusing on sort of uh, improving um, uh, professional practices of teachers, healthcare workers, and so on. Power, as I said, is is um, emerged uh, emerged in two spaces in some ways. It's uh, emerged in the global south, and emerges with um, um, primarily from anti-colonial struggles um, in the global south. Um, and in that respect, can be thought of as what uh, Raywin Connell the uh, the social theorist called Southern Theory um, and it has a, a particularly distinctive orientation in that respect being geographically grounded in the in the uh, global south and we think of people like uh, Paolo Freire his Pedagogy of the Oppressed um, which was published in the 1970s uh, people like Charles Border uh, in in uh, Colombia and uh, in Southeast Asia and India Rajas uh, Hand on um, um, sort of led the way in, in, in asserting a sort of power in the global south, a kind of southern theory version of it. In the global north, it's been sort of um, it's been sort of developed by um, the, this other stream, as I spoke of earlier, is um, been developed by people like was developed by people like Kurt Lewin uh, in psychology, social psychology. And it's being practitioner-based. It's more has a more professional orientation, and um, has been more um, open to being co-opted by um, sort of uh, northern institutions. For example, the World Bank has used it in uh, some of its programs to um, in, in, in places like Southeast Asia, Latin America, and so forth. Um, and they have been quite keen to develop participatory approaches uh, within within southern contexts. So there's there's that particular um, theme or, or or issue that's defined par. Um, I think a third understanding of par is that in many respects par has been is predates the the emergence of those orientations in the global south and the global north um, in the sense that in my work with indigenous people here in Canada um, a lot of indigenous people actually have traditionally used PAR to organize or perform or, or a version of PAR even though it wasn't called that to organize their their lives so that participate, participatory action research has been um, ingrained in um, the sort of community organisation of indigenous peoples, especially I'm thinking of, for example, the Cree of the, of the James Bay, who I've worked with um, over, the, over the years, that they have a very collaborative, cooperative way 
of um, working uh, working things out in terms of in terms of the work that they do, the the any kind of um, research or any kind of um, um, sort of um, activity that they organise is very collaborative, very participatory, and involves the whole community. So, in that sense, there's there are organic forms of power used by indigenous people. I saw this also to some extent in New Zealand when I worked there with the Maori population. And um, as I said, we don't, I mean, it wasn't called par, but it was a, a, a way of life for them in some respects. And so it, it struck me that although, you know, us um, kind of academics uh, in the North uh, like to, sort of, you know, give names to these things, that these um, that as a methodology as a way of working power has been used extensively by indigenous people here in Canada and and New Zealand and my, my I suspect in in other parts of the world as well I think there is um, there are connections between power um, ethnography and learning and social action I wouldn't say that there is a particular connection with ethnography per se which itself tends to be quite um, um, academic and professional but there is a connection between power and what's come to be known as institutional ethnography which is a particular kind of ethnography developed by the Canadian sociologist uh, Dorothy Smith and has quite a substantial following here in Canada and um, I think that um, the the common theme there is is the openly political nature of power um, in the in in addressing particular issues around social justice, social inequality, and those sorts of things that institutional um, that power and institutional ethnography are interested in. I think where there's where there are differences though is where um, where power is openly political and quite straightforward and often works outside the academy with social groups, uh, with NGOs, and so on. Institutional ethnography is much more ingrained within the academy and is, is more concerned about producing um, academic knowledge about particular subjects, whether it's youth homeless or whether it's um, you know, inequalities in the labour market or gender inequalities um, in academic or educational institutions. So there are, there are significant differences there. In relation to um, learning and social action, uh, Griff Foley has been one of the people who's really sort of pushed that agenda forward. And I think there are strong connections there with PAR. And again, institutional ethnography. But um, I think the thing about Foley's work is, uh, and learning and social action is that it's very close to PAR, less so with institutional ethnography, and certainly ethnography uh, in, in its more liberal um, anthropological sort of um, sense. Uh, in that um, learning and social action is is oriented towards um, a politics of liberation and emancipation and is quite radical and informed by Marxist and feminist theory and is interested in actually working with marginalised groups uh, much as power is as well and so I think that in terms of the kind of knowledges that they that they're concerned to produce are quite similar. Um, I, th I also think that um, um, power and learning and social action are much more connected to social movements as such outside the academy, whereas institutional ethnography and ethnography per se 
uh, in its anthropological versions is, is deeply embedded within the academy and as I've said about reproducing academic knowledge of one kind or another in the form of academic papers, conferences and so on. Whereas I think power and learning and social action is really about sort of being connected to social movements. And what's interesting there is that in the last five years, well, the last decade, I guess, is that um, out of that is uh, that 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 connection, if you like, between power and learning and social action uh, has come a move towards what's now called as activist research. So we often hear the term activist that didn't exist, or it did exist, but it wasn't commonly used until about. Um, a decade or maybe 20 years ago. Now it's quite commonly, you know, you quite commonly hear people talk about activists. Well, I th- there, there, there's, an, there's a, a strong move towards um, forms of activist research which take up um, power and learning in social action, which are focused on producing forms of knowledge which are, um, um, which are, which are, are outside of the academy and which are about which are about challenging existing social relations, whether they be um, neoliberal types of practices or whether there are even professional types of practices within schools around assessment and learning and so forth. So, I think there are interesting sort of parallels there that are still emerging within activist research, and I think over the coming years, we see activist research being something that um, will emerge also. Uh, within the academy as a form of um, a form of academic inquiry, it's already happening. I mean, it's certainly happening in my university. Um, people like um, Aziz Chowdhury, uh, Deep Kapoor, and uh, a few others have been developing it. But it seems to be taking it being um, being taken up elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm.